Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast, a bi weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 116 Ozu. Yeah, and today we're going to talk about um, one of the directors out there who's definitely not like a pop culture name, I don't think. Like, he, he wouldn't be a common household name until you get into the film buff world. And yeah. then he's kind of everywhere. He's a huge influence on a lot of people. He's got a very unique uh, style of filmmaking that kind of tosses a lot of the conventional rules that you know from uh, Hollywood and throws them out on their head and says, this is how we're going to do things. Oh, yeah. His movies move at their own pace. They have their own uh, sense of time and what's important and uh, dialogue. Um, and he is one of these directors who is also a very good writer, and that shows in his work as well. Of course, he has a, a writing partner who he works with throughout his entire career. Uh, but he is a—he is definitely somebody who ends up on you know the top ten greatest filmmakers of all time list, like all the time, oh, yeah. all the time. And so we covered that, Tokyo Story uh, back in our world tour episode, and that's actually where this episode comes from because we wanted to do a follow up on some of uh, the great directors that we covered in our season one world tour where we just kind of hit some uh, overview of films from various countries. And so we talked about Tokyo Story, which is um, pretty much uh, universally regarded as Ozu's complete masterpiece, but yet all of his films are considered masterpieces. And so we thought we would take a look at some more of his films and get a fuller idea. So that's what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, let's dive into the background of Yasajiro Ozu. He was born in 1903 in Fukugawa, Tokyo, and eventually his father moved his family out to Matsatsuka Mie Prefecture in 1924, where Ozu started uh, high school. Uh, he would actually skip class a lot uh, to sneak out to go watch movies, um, and his favorites included a lot of the early Italian historical epics like Quo Vadis um, from 1913 and also The Last Days of Pompeii from 1913. Um, and in fact, after seeing Civilization, which came out in 1916, uh, but obviously he was watching it much, much later, um, he decided to become a film director. Uh, and after high school, uh, he kind of had a rocky start to his career. He had an uneven footing. He eventually became a substitute teacher um, until eventually, with the help of his uncle, who introduced him to somebody, he was hired onto the Sochu, uh, the Shochiku uh, Film Company as an assistant in the cinematography department. And Shochiku is the uh, production studio that he spends most of his career with. There's one or two times that he leaves to go work with other people, but he typically ends up coming back. And most Ozu films as you'll see when you watch through his work, have the Shochiku logo logo at the start. Uh, eventually, in 1926, he would become a third assistant director uh, in the directorial department. Um, and eventually, in 1927, he had a little art- altercation with a, a co-worker at the studio. Um, he claimed that the co-worker cut in front of him in line at the cafeteria and he proceeded to punch that co-worker, decked him in the face. Um, and he was called into the studio head's office, and he used this opportunity to pitch a script. Um, As you which, do. Which, which worked. 
um, which you, uh, in Ozu and Johnson and I were talking about this a little bit before the podcast is one of those uh, filmmakers who airs more on the private side. You know, he's not like your Kurosawa or your Hitchcock, who's a little more, if not flamboyant, a little more charismatic. Yeah. I would say Hitchcock's flamboyant. I would not say Kurosawa's flamboyant, but he is definitely charismatic. They uh, both like to talk about their their work a lot. They like to talk about their work, and the people who follow them, e- either within or without the film buff community, kind of have an idea of who these people are. Ozu kind of remains more of a mystery throughout his career. He's a very private person, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, there's a lot of speculation that he might have been gay, uh, but we don't know for sure. And in 1920s, 1930s Japan, it's very understandable why that might lead to a more private uh, lifestyle than otherwise. Uh, but anyway, his pitch to his uh, studio director is successful, and he is immediately moved uh, and promoted to becoming a director in the Jiragaki, or the period film department. Uh, and he worked with his uh, a co-writer to write this script for the Sword of Penitence, Penitence. 1927, which is his first movie. It is a lost movie. It is a silent movie. And it's very sad that it is lost. Um, But it is important because it's the first movie he ever made. uh, And it is the start of his working relationship with Kogo uh, Noda, who is his co-writer for his entire career. Uh, There's like one or two movies that they didn't collaborate on, but almost everything that we think of when we think of Ozu was written with the help of Noda. Um, in 1928, the studio decided to focus on short comedies, and this is when Ozu starts making um, both his I Was Born But I Graduated But series, uh, along with films like Body Beautiful. Uh, and this is where he starts using his signature low angles um, and starts to kind of create his sense of cinematic style that we know and love. Uh, today, including the tatami shot, which we'll get to what that is much later. Uh, he would serve in the Sino-Japanese War, which is a war that happened right before World War II, uh, and was discharged through part of World War II uh, when he would go on to make uh, Brothers and Sisters of the Toda family from 1941, and There Was a Father from 1942. He would eventually be drafted back into the army to make propaganda films, but he actually ditches the army to go to Singapore uh, where he makes a uh, semi-documentary film called To Delhi, To Delhi, um, with an Indian activist. Um, and then he took a year off in Singapore, just playing tennis, watching American movies like Citizen Kane, and reading books, um, which is fascinating that he got away with all of this, but he does. <laughs> um, and after, after at the end of the war, when uh, the Allies start occupying all of this territory formerly held by Axis powers, um, he would for a short amount of time, work on a rubber plantation as a prisoner of war, uh, but quickly be repatriated back to Japan. uh, And we would almost immediately continue making films, including his very famous Noriko trilogy, which uh, features late spring from 1949, early summer from 1951 and Tokyo story from 1953. Tokyo story, as Jonathan mentioned, we've already covered on the podcast. Um, And these movies are where he starts to actually be commercially successful He actually had a lot of problems earlier on in his career um, with making very artistic movies, uh, very impactful movies that critics just loved. But uh, Shochiko actually, you know, would always hound him, even through like the period where he's making short form comedies, that his stuff was too obtuse or too highbrow to appeal to um, the common crowds that paid the money. 
um, and they weren't very commercially successful. So this is that switch that flips to him being a big name in popular Japanese culture during the period, um, along with still being a commercial success. And he starts working in color with Equinox Flower in 1958, um, and he would actually serve as the president of the Directors Guild of Japan from 1955 to 1963. Um, and he would actually, just a little fun trivia fact, fact, him and Noda would measure how far they had, were in the writing process by how many bottles of sake they had drinking. Um, so hilarious. they would be like, oh, we're one bottle in. Oh, I don't know what their goal was <laughs> if they were trying to get to like three bottles or six bottles or it's something like, like Sherlock's that. It's like three pipe problem. This is like yeah, a six bottle yeah. script. Yeah, basically this is uh, a lot. And, and it, it reminds me of a lot of drinking and writing stories that I've heard from Hollywood. <laughs> um, apparently a lot of people, and it, it's that old adage, Jonathan, I'm sure you've heard this before, but you uh, drink alcohol to be creative. Cause that's when you do, you think up weird stuff and you drink coffee when you're doing rewrites when you're sitting there and really thinking uh, stuff through and doing te- the tedious work of rewriting. Um, and that's actually a very common writing style during this period. People would just like bang out scripts in like a day to a week's time. And then they oh, yeah, would Kurosawa spend talks weeks about months. how they, he would just go to uh, like a separate home that he had and just like for two weeks sit there and just write a script and then come back and make the script. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then and then spend time like rewriting it and fixing it and retooling it to your purposes. And there's there's I found like this whole list on Ozu's, uh, uh, you know, all these uh, Wikipedia and all these articles about him, about all these places in Japan where he liked to go and write, um, you know, gardens, secluded cabins, other stuff like that up in all over Japan. It sounded really beautiful uh, and very inspirational, inspirational locations to write. But Sadly, he passed before his time, uh, dying on his 60th birthday of throat cancer. Um, and he uh, shares a grave with his mother in Ingakuji uh, Kamakara, which is one of the biggest Zen, Buddha, Zen Buddhist temples in Japan. Um, and it bears simply one character on its gravestone, uh, the character Mu, which stands for nothingness, uh, which seems like a very Ozu thing to do. Um, but without further ado, that's a very brief skimming of the surface of Ozu's life. But let's talk about his work, Jonathan. What are we going to be covering today on the show? Yeah, so we're starting with uh, Late Spring, also considered one of Ozu's uh, best films, uh, usually right up there with Tokyo Story. Uh, and it's based on the short novel Father and Daughter by Kazuo Hi- Hirotsu. Hirotsu. And uh, then we'll be moving on to Floating Weeds from 1959, kind of the oddball of this group, because we'll talk about the similarities between our first and last films. Uh, But this was a remake of one of Ozu's uh, very first films from 1934 called A Story of Floating Weeds. Uh, And that one was a silent film. And then he uh, comes back and remakes it in color, uh, actually with... um, a really famous uh, Japanese cinematographer who did uh, like Rashomon and Ugetsu and some of these other uh, really classic Japanese films of the period. Uh, And then we'll be wrapping up with Ozu's final film from 1962, An Autumn Afternoon, uh, which, as I mentioned, has a lot of similarities to Late Spring and a lot of the themes of An Autumn Afternoon and Late Spring are kind of staples throughout his work. So we will get into all that. And as Alex said, all these films were co-written uh, between Ozu and Kogonoda. 
All right, Jonathan, without further ado, let's jump into uh, the work of Yasujiro Ozu. First up is Late Spring from 1949. Jason, take it away. Late Spring from 1949. A father, Shukichi, and daughter, Noriko, live happily together. Shukichi is widowed and Noriko has been taking care of her father rather than getting married. She is now 27 and her aunt convinces Shukichi that if he doesn't marry off Noriko soon, then she'll be alone forever. Noriko is reluctant to the matchmaking and it is up to Shukichi to sacrifice his current state of happiness to persuade his daughter to find a husband. Okay, Jonathan, I, so before, before we, before we jump into the meat of this, I want to talk about the title of this movie, because um, mm-hmm. I think the titles are important, and there's a lot of uh, these titles that have these kind of nature themes and time-based nature themes in Ozu's work, late spring, early summer, late summer, an autumn afternoon, mm-hmm. late autumn, um, early spring, it was getting a little confusing when I was trying to look up the movies, I'm like, wait, that late, yeah, early, sp- yeah, early, no, early summer, late spring, but there's also an early spring. <laughs> it's kind of all over the place. Yeah. And I have two thoughts on this. The first is it feels very much like haiku. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, everyone knows haiku is five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. But the thing a lot of people tend to forget is there is normally at least one line that needs to be referential to nature, at least traditionally. They tend to be referenced to nature themes written outside, written in a, some sort of inspirational place anybody who's uh played ghost of Tsushima lately will know what i'm talking about because that's a big feature in the game that's how you level up some of your stuff um but that's that's one of my takes on the uh on these titles that they're you know they feel kind of haiku like Mm -hmm. but the other is that they kind of refer to times in life that uh these characters are currently experiencing so like in late spring, the late spring would be referring to Noriko, right? She's yeah. ending the spring of her life, and she's late to it, too. Like, she's kind of waited a little long to get married for the sake of her father, and it's time for her summer to begin, but her father needs to let go. And then when you get to an autumn afternoon later on, you're kind of looking at almost the same exact situation, mm-hmm. but more from the father's perspective, who is in the fall of his life, the autumn of his life, Um who is, you know, just experiencing one more day of growth in uh, the autumnal season of one's experience. And Floating Uh, Weeds, of course, being about a group of actors that are kind of drifting and kind of floating all over the place, which we'll see. Uh, Drifting and bumping into each other. Totally makes sense. Um, And I think a couple of the titles even have, like, extra layers that um, don't totally come across in the... uh, the translation i was seeing that one of the films i can't remember which one but it like the the words that make up uh like late summer or whichever one it is actually like include the name of the family in there and that kind of thing so uh obviously we don't get the like the full impact probably of of some of these but kind of on their face we you can see how they relate to just uh the setting and the uh the thematic uh drive of the film so yeah, like you said, late spring, referring to uh, Noriko's uh, stage of life where she's kind of at the end of this period where she's the most marriageable, if you will. And, uh, you know, she's kind of at that transition point where she has to decide, basically, if she doesn't get married very soon, then 
she probably won't. And that's what her and her father struggle with through the entire film. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we talked about recently on the podcast, Jonathan, the idea of a high concept versus a low concept film. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these are just like, un- without without any sort of debate about it, low concept movies. Yeah. Right? Like they're, the, the plot is hard to describe. <laughs> It would take a while to describe the plot in its totality. Um, and they're d- the central point of each scene definitely isn't the plot. It's the character interactions yeah. um, that we're seeing super subtly. But this one goes so low concept that you would you could basically call it slice of life. Um, mm-hmm. Where you're almost just getting a piece of these uh, people's experiences and what they are like on a day to day basis. Almost Italian neorealist, like we've talked about, uh, you know, on that, again, that scale between Citizen Kane and Bicycle Thieves. These are all like right there with Bicycle Thieves. They are uh, stories of everyday people and the decisions that they have to make, you know, whether that's uh, like in Bicycle Thieves, whether or not to steal a bicycle in order to get work to support a family or in films like this, whether it's just simply to get married and, and leave your family uh, and what the repercussions of that are. It makes for an interesting experience. Uh, I don't know, what what is your experience watching these movies, Jonathan? Because I'll say that when I first started watching some Ozu movies a year or two ago, uh, I guess three. Um, it was probably when we, was it when, when we, we did, did Tokyo the, Story? Yep. Yeah, that was the first one. Uh, it was, name. I found them a little challenging at first just because I wasn't used to the pacing yeah. It's very different than what we're used to in American movie making. It's a lot like it, I, I feel the same kind of struggle, although a little bit to to a greater degree with like Tarkovsky. Um, it, it's the same kind of thing where there's a lot of thought being put into it, but not a lot is being given to you to, you know, you got to work for it. You got to work to uh, really get to what the director is getting to. Uh, because yeah. he's just kind of presenting things as they happen and he's not really explaining it to you uh, as an audience. Um, yeah, and I feel like uh, this Ozu, Ozu films definitely fall into that category and they're reward, rewarding in that way too, though, because yeah. the more you watch the characters, the more you understand the characters because there isn't a lot of blatant exposition about how the characters act or what their relationships are like you're just left to pick up on it based off of contextual clues so if you can uh you know drink that cup of coffee and watch the read the subtitles um and engage with the really remarkable imagery in these movies Mm -hmm. um you know by 30 minutes in you should be pretty hooked into what's going on with these people but at the same time you might have a pretty hard time explaining why you're hooked it's just that the people are so real um that you can relate to them in a way even though in the course of this movie you're dealing with these these topics that are kind of basically very old school like this idea of like you have to marry your daughter off and mm-hmm. once you marry your daughter off you'll like never see her again or you'll see her very rarely um or you have to live alone or like yeah. this this familial duty it's very old school it's very traditional um which you I think have, would make yeah. it harder to relate to, but I like the idea that this, this over the course of this movie, by the end, even though you can't put it into words because 
it's something that is inherently difficult to put into words. You can understand that sweet, sad feeling that our characters have by the end of the movie, where they're both happy to be moving forward and sad at the part of their life that is coming to a close. Yeah. Um, and I it's like actually, that yeah, idea. There's a lot of be- debate over, you know, whether because the so much of what Ozu focuses on by the end of the film is is the uh, the bitter part of that bittersweet um, parting. Uh, and there's there's a video essay that I'm going to bring up here in a second, but that kind of talks about this, how uh, there is that bittersweetness. But Ozu is really focusing on like the the challenge of the separation between the daughter and the father. And there's also a lot of kind of discussion between critics on whether or not, uh, you know, Ozu is critiquing marriage like this is something that's bad because they were both happy and they're both kind of uh losing some of their happiness in order to fit in with tradition and that kind of thing uh or if it's just a necessary moving on of life that has to happen and yes it's sad but it's it's just you know the way that life works you move on and uh and all that kind of thing so it's it's interesting because there there is like kind of a resignation to it but the the level to which you feel that this is a kind of necessary sadness or this is like a culturally imposed uh sadness that you know they shouldn't have to be going through depends on the way that you're coming looking at the film and looking at the from like a cultural perspective which is really interesting yeah yeah um I definitely lean towards the camp where I don't think it's critiquing marriage. And I, I say that because it seems to be that Ozu focuses in on these period, these points of change in mm-hmm. people's lives. Um, and by the end of each movie, you kind of see how the change is necessary in a way. Yeah. Um, and even the fact that we get more Noriko in other movies like this, the story doesn't end in this movie. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's different Noriko's, but yeah, there's, there's the, the Noriko trilogy, uh, between this film, uh, early summer and Tokyo story. They're all different families, but the central character is all named Noriko. Uh, and she's always like a, a young single woman always played by um uh I'm going to butcher this name but uh Setsuko Hara uh and actually the cast is something that we should talk about too because the cast shows up often in Ozu movies uh Chishu Ryu uh he is in all of these he's so much fun to watch um he plays her dad in this film he actually plays her brother in the next Noriko film Early Summer which is interesting uh, he in real life, he's like 16 years older than her. So he can like depending basically depending on whether he's wearing a mustache or not, he can kind of fall a little younger into her brother category or a little older into her dad, dad category. Um, but yeah, he's in this one. He's in Floating Weeds very briefly. And then he's also her dad in an autumn afternoon. Um, so, yeah, we do get like this this Noriko character who kind of resembles that that changing character that Ozu comes back to time and time again, although it's not like a continual narrative between the three films. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but I do like this idea of kind of film as poetry in the sense that you're using an art form to can communicate a feeling, emotion, sensation, or idea that cannot otherwise be communicated, mm-hmm. um, except through shared experience. And I think shared experience is a pretty good way to describe Ozu movies. Um, but let's talk about some of his techniques, Jonathan. Um, yeah. And let's start off with ellipses. Um, ellipses in writing are the dot, dot, dot. Literally, that, that's what it is. Um, and it's typically used to cut something out or cut over something. Um, and particularly the most common usage tends to be in quotations when you're quoting from some kind of text and you want to skip over a part that isn't necessary. You know, you're skipping ahead a couple sentences or Because it won't fit into your 280 characters. Yeah, it won't fit into your <laughs> characters or, you know, it's just not pertinent to the situation and you can communicate your meaning without it. So you hop over it. Um, but in movie making, it essentially means omitting scenes that are implied to have happened or the characters discuss that happened between the beginning and the ending of the film. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of it in late spring. The, the most prominent one is, uh, you know, towards the end where we like just jump ahead to suddenly, boom, Noriko's getting married. Yeah, um, and I do want to talk about the fact that we never see her fiance. It's not, and, and that's why, because Ozu has determined that it isn't important to what he's talking about mm-hmm. in the script. It's I, a distraction. I, yeah. I have a theory too, though, uh, that may, may be reading too much into the film, but uh, I can talk I, about that in a second. <laughs> knowing your Twilight Zone brain, probably? No, no it's actually um, more along the lines of, I, I was getting the sense and... This the thought struck struck me while I was watching the film, and then I kept like thinking about it, and I it it seemed to fit pretty well. But I I haven't seen anything else relating to this uh, uh, analysis or critique wise externally. So I'm I may be thinking too much about this, but I I was starting to get the sense that the film is kind of talking about Japan's relationship with America. And the way that Japan almost like was forced into this relationship with America that was kind of taking it away from its traditional roots. And uh, it was kind of moving forward in a way. And yet there's this kind of bittersweet tension from the past and this, uh, you know, the the things that had happened um, and their old old relationship with Germany uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, divorce and remarriage and and how much Noriko hates that uh, at the beginning and stuff like that and also the only the only description that we really get of her fiance is that he looks like Gary Cooper and so I, I just kept having this thought that her new relationship and splitting from her father almost resembles, Japan moving into kind of a a different era with America and also the father's um, divorce and remarriage almost also kind of represents Japan's divorce from Germany and moving on to a different kind of relationship with America. It might be too much, but I kept thinking about it and it never really didn't fit. So there you go. So I, I think elements of that are accurate and applicable. 
I don't think that was the authorial intent. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. But also, I don't think authorial intent is the end all be all. And definitely considering that um, Ozu grew up in this period where Japan's moving away from uh, its, you know, traditionalist uh, roots and definitely its early 20th century autocratic past uh, into a basically forced westernization is not inaccurate. And it's definitely possible that he could have, you know, subconsciously or consciously chosen yeah. to made make a hidden, uh, uh, you know, a, a slight mm-hmm. reference to that. But that is definitely part of the script that is like a bonus meaning for people who are willing to dig in and find that. Uh, if they want to interpret the text that way, it's not explicit, but I right? Don't think it's not explicit, and I don't, it's definitely not the central point. And one of the reasons why he wouldn't like, definitely, you know, part of what you learn in screenwriting classes, you know, always go for the most dramatic thing, always make it pop, punch it up, um, and so you, you know, getting the chance to like throw in like, oh, the the husband's an American. That would be a very dramatic turn. Yeah. But it would it would totally distract who the husband is would totally distract from the central. Um, yeah, he's not important. The fact that she is getting married is what's important, which is the use of the ellipses. Um, mm-hmm. It is a conscious decision to not include certain things, which is not something that was done in uh, in, in previous um uh, previous popular cinema especially in america you you typically included everything and even when you had movies that were fairly low concept like a lot of the dramas of that day they tended to air less towards the poetic and more towards the character drama um which isn't to say that this movie doesn't have character drama or character arcs but it very narrowly focuses on these internal feelings of a few people um, whereas a character drama would be like, yeah, let's get the husband in here. Let's have all these people butting heads and make it like an American stage play where there's like 50 people and they all have substance abuse issues and they all have cheated on one <laughs> another. Um, yeah. In that sense, American film is to Ozu what Bollywood is to American film. <laughs> yeah, very much so. This is some of the most realistic filmmaking I've ever seen. And his presentation definitely, and this is where, he kind of got into trouble early on in his career. He would just flaunt like convention and just do it his way. Um, like shooting one shots dead on instead of doing it over the shoulder, which was the convention Um, or stuff like his low shots, which started around this time. And they were called, uh, or actually much earlier, sorry, not by late spring, but they were definitely in full bloom by late spring. Uh, they were called Tatami shots, um, tatami is uh, tatami mats are like the traditional flooring that you see in traditional Japanese architecture, um, and so they were called tatami shots because you basically just put the camera on the mat, or yeah. you you know build a raised set, or you take out the tatami mat and put the tripod down there. Um, but he uses a lot of low angles like that. He uses a lot of ellipses, um, and he also uh, tends to eschew a lot of. Um, traditional establishing shots, which is something that's become much more common in current cinema. Like we don't always need an exterior of every building that we go into or of every house. Yeah. Uh, although that is a good way to tell a story, to tell somebody about, like, you know, like this is the area we're in. This is tell something about the people who are going to meet here. 
Uh, but here, and he if you opts can make for, your setting relate to the characters in the story, all the better. Yeah, and in, in but for Ozu, he tends to cut to some sort of uh, it's technically film, so it's not really a still life, but basically a still life. And the most famous example is actually the vase, which is here in Late Spring. Yeah, which is also kind of like a micro example of ellipsis. Uh, and this is where I'll I'll link to a uh, a video essay uh, regarding the vase uh, in the description. But basically, what the vase is is there's a scene uh, towards the end of the film. Uh, Noriko has decided to marry this guy that her friends and family have found for her and set her up, and she's decided that she needs to get married. Uh, she likes the guy. There's not like it's not really an issue that she doesn't think she's going to be happy. She's mostly just like. I'm already happy, so why do I need to change anything? So she's made the decision to get married, and her and her father go uh, on a trip together. One last trip before she gets married. Originally, in the script, the trip was in order to go visit uh, the grave of her mother, um, but that was uh, kind of downplayed due to the American censorship, which uh, uh, was a thing at the time when America was still kind of... Uh, helping Japan kind of get back on his feet and stuff like that. But film still had to go through the American censorship board. And that sounded a little too much like ancestor worship. So it got kind of downplayed to just a vacation. Uh, but they're, they're laying down uh, in their hotel room and talking about her marriage and her father falls asleep while they're talking. And she goes from having a smile on her face to having a much more somber, Almost, but not quite like a full frown. Um, and yet, in the middle of her change in facial expression, Ozu cuts away to a vase uh, and a window and some shadows of bamboo leaves kind of drifting. Um, and it's it's inspired a lot of conversation. This one shot of uh, Noriko smiling, and then we cut to a vase, and then we cut back, and now she's frowning. And... It kind of goes into it's it's almost actually a subversion of the Kuleshov effect, which is you cut from one shot to a different shot and then back to the same shot. And the change tells you something about um, the relationship between the two shots. And yet the vase really doesn't have anything to do with Noriko's emotional state. And it's it's just kind of a subliminal filmmaking technique. Uh, and this is where the. The interpretation varies because, you know, if you talk, if you read uh, critics like Paul Schrader uh, before he became a writer and director in his own right of films that we covered like Taxi Driver, um, he he's developed an entire theory of transcendentalism in the works of Ozu, Bresson and. Uh, oh, crud, who's the other one? Uh, oh, Carl Dreyer. And he says that cutting away to a vase just kind of gives us time. It takes us out of her head and just puts us into our own head and and kind of transcends us out of that moment and puts a, a different thought in our head. Some people say it's arbitrary. Some people say, um, you know, various things about what this cutaway to a vase is. But that's kind of what Alex has been talking about, about the ellipse, where we're taking out that transition of her smile to her frown and kind of letting the audience fill in that gap. That's like a really tiny example, but it kind of goes into that same idea. Yeah, 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 uh, exactly. Yeah, I don't think the vase itself, like it, 
doesn't necessarily have to be a vase. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I can think I, of I is that, that a vase is very fragile and it's kind it. of like a, cause the, the, the marriage and the moving on and the leaving the father alone, there's another layer to it that comes up in some of Ozu's films about, um, the moving on of a child through marriage symbolizing, uh, or alluding to the parent's mortality and that the next stage is the parent's death. And so that fragility is the only like literal connection I can really think of to the vase. Yeah. And I feel like that choice was definitely made with the, for lack of a better term, the poetic part of the brain that doesn't think in, you know, language terms. Yeah. It's just like, what would be perfect for the scene? A vase. Do you know why? No, it just fits. Um, but I also feel like it doesn't necessarily have to be a vase. It was just what was around and what felt right in this slice of their life. Um, and I say that because I've watched a bunch of Ozu films this week and Ozu does this a lot in like almost all of his films. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reason for picking particular objects. It's not like everyone's a metaphor. Sometimes uh, there is. Like at the end of late spring, there's a shot of uh, Noriko's mirror that we've seen her getting ready in front of. She was getting ready for the wedding in front of it. And we see a shot of it empty for several seconds. That one clearly has significance, but not all of them do. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's less of a transition shot and more of a um, specific meaning shot. Um, but all that is to say that Ozu has kind of started to invent like his own cinematic language that is different than the one we typically talk about. Uh, yeah. It kind of plays off of now, if you notice, especially when Jonathan dives into, you know, topics like the Kuleshov effect, it still plays off of the same like psychological effects that and the standard way that the human brain interprets images and juxtaposition that uh, are traditional uh, film language tends to talk about, or I should say our Hollywood film language tends to use. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that is the only way to do it. Now, at the same time, Ozu clearly understands the rules he's breaking. Like he knows how to draw the eye to certain things and make certain connections. Otherwise his films wouldn't come across as masterpieces. They would come across as gibberish, which they don't. <laughs> right. Uh, but I mean, I feel like films, uh, that kind of play on the tradition of directors like Ozu and Brisson and Tarkovsky can take their level of quote unquote transcendentalism to an extreme degree. And it can become gibberish if you're not doing it intentionally and just like trying to recreate a feeling or, you know, a style of Ozu without like actually having intention and story driven uh meaning behind it so not that every single shot has a specific effect but the overall effect is uh is very vivid and when it's done carelessly it can it can just become nonsensical yeah um which is why ozu is the master of it um right. and you know he definitely has influences outside of uh, his work, but it's hard to point at another person and go like, they make movies like Ozu. Yeah. Um, all right, Jonathan, we've been on late spring for quite a while. Do you want to <laughs> move on to Floating Weeds from 1959? Yeah, let's do it. Jason, take it away. Floating Weeds from 1959. A group of traveling kabuki players travels to a small coastal town. The troop leader, Komajuro, 
has a history with an old mistress and a secret son, Kiyoshi, in the town. Kiyoshi believes his father to be his uncle. Meanwhile, Komajiro's current flame, Sumiko, is jealous and hires a young actress, Kayo, in the troupe to seduce Kiyoshi to humiliate Komajuro. Unforeseen by anyone, Kayo actually falls in love with Kiyoshi. The actor's deceptions can't stay secret for long, though, and the stage is set for dramatic reveals and confrontations between family and lovers. All right, Jonathan, I want to start off with a little bit of a story for you. All right. Um, and this is, again, on the fact that Ozu kind of just does his own things and rules are for squares. Um, and this is a, a quote from Roger Ebert, who spoke to a young assistant who worked with Ozu on this, this movie. Um, and to quote, Ozu once had a young assistant who suggested that perhaps he should shoot con- conversations so that it seemed to the audience that the characters were looking at one another. Ozu agreed to a test. They shot uh, a scene both ways and then compared them. And Ozu said, you see, no difference. Um, and this is the simple rule. And I think we've talked about this before. We must have eyelines. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you have a character looking screen left, the other character is looking screen right. If they're having a conversation back and forth. Uh, that relates to the 180 on- degree rule, which uh, I was also noticing Ozu doesn't care very much about. <laughs> no, no. Um, but I also I totally agree. I never feel confused in an Ozu movie about who's talking to who, mm-hmm. who's looking where or the geography of a scene. Um, and Ozu just establishes it in a different way. He typically uses much longer shots, much slower shots, um, shots where you get to t- take in the entirety of the room, how it's lived in. Um, they're fairly static, and you can see people move to different blocking points throughout the scene. Um, so even when he jumps over lines or uh, looks dead on at characters, uh you're not confused because those rules aren't necessary here. Now in a much faster paced movie, those rules make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, when you're like, you know, shooting two people fighting on the back of a train or having a conversation while jumping out of an airplane, it makes sense to use eye lines. Uh, they're necessary there, but in Ozu's work, which is so converse dialogue heavy and just mm-hmm. feeling the moment heavy, you don't Basically, need to- once you've set like, a shot of a table with four people around it, you automatically know where all those people are. So if you're cutting around them, there, you know, there's not a lot of establishing you have to do other than seeing that they're all in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I like this particular quote from Ebert just because it points out something that I notice a lot of young filmmakers, like my contemporaries fall into this trap um, where they're like, well, this is the rule. We have to do it this way. I'm like, you don't necessarily have to like, take a look at it. Is it working without it? Then skip it It throw it out, like do whatever works. Yeah, right. But breaking a rule in a way that doesn't work, you know, the the rules are are the easiest way to just make any scene or film make sense. Uh, But if it yeah, if it's making sense without it, then it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Understand the rules. Do not be a slave to the rules. Yeah. Uh, all right, but yeah, we got to talk about this film because it's so different from our other two and from a lot of the uh, the kind of everyday, uh, I want to say like quote-unquote respectable Ozu films because Floating yeah, Leads is, would, is a, a little is, cruder. This is straight-up melodrama. This, yeah. is, this, is, <laughs> this is a Japanese Douglas Sirk movie. 
I I was thinking, yeah, it's almost like a pirate story, except it, it it's about actors who have come in to a town where they have like you know backstories and histories and like sordid affairs, uh, and they're planning to and they get marooned, and it's so it's it's almost like a story of pirates, but just not on the open seas. Like when they come back to port and they have to deal with all their uh, problems that they created last time they were in port. Um, pirates dealing with their problems is a very Ozu concept, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's so interesting because it is, it's got like a lot more, um, of this, like a a lot of the things in the, the traditionalist versus modernist, uh, conflicts in like an autumn afternoon and late spring, uh, are not so much the forefront here. It's, it's much more of a moral tale. Uh, and it's one that's so interesting because they're, they're almost all, all the characters are twisted in some way. I mean, we're following the guy who, uh, you know, won't even admit that he's his child's father and, um, and yet is trying to give moral lectures to the other characters about their relationships. And it all just seems so backwards and, and sorted. Uh, and yet it's, it's really entertaining because you know, something's going to, uh, some pot is going to boil over at some point. Um, which is not usually what you're waiting for in an Ozu film. So I think that makes this, this movie really unique. Yeah. Yeah. No, it even has like, you know, touches of like Greek tragedy to it. Oh yeah. Um, in a I way mean, it's even, even the fact that they're just, just the fact that they are actors, that they're like a traveling troupe is almost like a, a Shakespearean or a Greek kind of a, a throw in there. And like this, this really bad, like ragtag team of actors that that are just like uncouth in their in their acting and in their just personal lives. Yeah. Have you seen the uh, the previous version of this movie from uh, Ozu? No, I didn't watch the the silent film. Gotcha. OK, that would be a curious comparison. Yeah, I actually have not watched it yet. I almost did. But I think on the criterion description, it said that the story is pretty similar um, he just kind of updated the aesthetic and the actors and, and that kind of thing. That kind of makes sense. Um, yeah, it's a big jump and it introduces two technologies, color and sound mm-hmm. uh, between the two, which is big. I don't know. I just I keep comparing it to a Cirque movie. Uh, <laughs> it, it's very it's very much that it's, it's playing with the idea of conventions. It isn't like as much of a condemnation of social norms as Douglas Cirque typically does, um, but it definitely falls into the same same category and i like that this exists because it means there's ozu movies that aren't just poems like this is a character drama low concept movie yeah hands down um it uses all the same techniques which is also nice to see that he employs his same you know kind of personalized film language kit that he's developed just in a different genre sort of which is super cool um, mm-hmm. And of course, you know, throughout the entire movie, I still feel as related or at least understanding of these characters, empathetic maybe is the best term, as I do in his uh, more standard works. Yeah, I almost feel there's almost more of a connection because it is more based on just kind of basic morality than it is like a particular cultural tradition uh, because there are some of those cultural disconnects in the other films uh, 
that I feel like as Americans, we probably don't understand the full impact or the full weight of certain arguments as far as uh, marriage and family being a driving force in who and when you marry and that kind of thing. But in Floating Weeds, it's just like, you know, you don't go telling your son for his entire life that you're his uncle and then expect him to accept you with open arms. You know, like that's a pretty universal uh, moral um, situation. Yeah, we might need to sit down and talk about this for a while. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then just the the almost not quite, but like almost doomed love. Uh, but that was started as the the setup between the traveling actress who's who's, uh, you know, a little more flaunty and then the the straight laced uh, kid and their relationship and struggling with that and um, all these things that, you know, are pretty cut and dry. And you just know that you're just kind of waiting for all the intersections to happen. Uh, And it's not so much of trying to figure out like, um, you know, as Americans, well, of course, just leave your dad. Your dad will be fine. He can live on his own. But, you know, in Japan, families stay together and they support each other. And if you're the only one supporting your parent, then that's kind of a big deal to leave them, just kind of ditch them and go. Oh, yeah, it's with a super. Yeah, yeah that's, the, it's something that we don't understand as much here, as some of these. Yeah. Yeah. It's a literally like this dude does not know how to like cook and clean for himself. Yeah. Like he's literally been taken care of by women his entire life and his his daughter's like I don't like I don't know how you're going to live without me around. Yeah. Um but those are so things I that are a little the less a bit more. Yeah, those are a little less to uh, they they take a little more translation for us, but floating weeds there's very little of that. Like everything that happens in floating weeds is a universal Yeah, that's probably not a good thing to do or yeah, you know, that's that's a good reaction to this or, you know, those kinds of decisions. Uh, even just the uh, um, the manager of the theater ditching them and they're all just like stuck and they're like, well, we were supposed to be getting paid for another like two months and then they were going to send us to a different place. But I don't know what to do now. Uh, you know, as a freelancer, I was relating to some of those things like a little <laughs> too much. <laughs> Or it's just like, well, I mean, if you're not going to pay me like you said you would, what the heck am I supposed to do? Um, but yeah, these More are these are universal and they're they're very heightened. Um, and again, like Ozu is so low key that when some of these really heightened things come out, you're just like hanging on the edge of your seat for them. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting to see a, a, a director who you know for doing low key stuff do mm-hmm. some high key melodrama. Even uh, just the dialogue, like the, the crudeness out of the, well. yeah, the, the other actors who are, you know, like sizing up the ladies in town and trying to figure out which one they're going to seduce or hit on or whatever. Um, and like just, well, there's a lot of drinking in an autumn afternoon, too. <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, there's the a lot of drinking in a like lot that. of these movies. Yeah, but also we talked about how him and his co-writer would measure their script progress through how many bottles of sake they had. Slammed back. Yeah, it seems so like an ever-present reality, I guess, uh, yeah. in the world of these films. Yeah, a dr- it's almost like drinking was a rampant problem in the 20th century. Yeah. So this film does does do something with um, the color that, uh, obviously, late spring was black and white, so there's not really that element, but Floating Weeds did have a lot of red in it, 
Um, not quite to the level that we've been talking about with some of like the uh, um, the film brats or the American New Wave, where like a color absolutely signifies something, but it's just like there's a permanence uh, or a permeation of this red hue that a lot of the film is in very muted browns and grays, and then there will be like a red umbrella or a red awning or a red uh, light that comes up and it it always kind of stands out um, that I, in a way that I think is really uh, interesting. Uh, so this is, I mean, because this is the first time, uh, at least in these films, it's one of his first uh, color films. I don't think it's his very first. No, one. his first his first color film is Equinox Flower. Okay, yeah. But uh, even just like the the red flowers outside of the uh, bar uh, that they all go drinking at, um, just kind of as an ever-present reality. Oh, here's another thing, Alex, that this comes up in Floating Weeds and An Autumn Afternoon, is uh, that the little lighthouse that we start the film on, the very first shot is uh, this little lighthouse on a pier, and at various points throughout the film, we'll, we'll come back to this pier, uh, like when the dad slash uncle, uh, and his son are fishing and we see the lighthouse kind of, it's kind of just this anchor, this kind of visual anchor that we keep coming back to. Um, and I don't know that it had like a very specific significance, but it's another one of those things that just kind of permeates through the film. And in an autumn afternoon, it's the, uh, the smokestacks. And those are actually, often like part of the poster of the film because there's such a, a central image, although they may not be like a very specific like symbol in the way that we would typically think of. Yeah, no, I think I feel like I, I like that uh, technique that's used and because it creates an image that the audience can associate with whatever they want to associate throughout the film with. Um, and I also feel like it's kind of natural like when you think back to important moments in your life or important places in your life, there's probably one or two images that you always associate them with. Mm -hmm. um, like I remember the lighthouse by the town where I continually told my son that it was actually my, his uncle <laughs> yeah. for so many years. And then that really backfired on me. That was pretty crazy. Huh? Right. Um, or the smokestacks, um, or even just the fact that the smokestacks kind of introduced the entire color motif of an autumn afternoon, which yeah. is strong. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's, there's another point that I want to bring up, like towards the, uh, the climax, like at the end of the, the rising action, when um, our main, our main character, uh, Oh gosh, what's his name? Uh, Komo, Komojuro uh, played by Ganjiro, Nakamura, who apparently was a uh, a very famous kabuki actor in his own right, uh, and yet I don't think we ever actually see him on stage. It's another one of those ellipsis things where he's playing a kabuki actor, and uh, yet we don't see his performance ever on screen. Um, but he's he's gotten into a fight with his mistress, who's upset that he's hanging out with his old mistress that he has a kid with and spending time with him. And she's started to sabotage his life and his uh, acting troupe. Um, and then there's a moment where it rains and they are stuck 
One of them is under one awning on one side of the street, and the other one is under an awning on the other side of the street, and the rain is dividing them. And again, that red umbrella is the only color thing in the film, uh, and it's such yeah, a striking... a damn good one. It's almost... In that moment, it was almost like a Kurosawa like samurai standoff. Uh, I felt like there's this like strong divide between them and they are they're in the middle of a duel. Um, and it's a completely verbal duel, but it's just as brutal as, you know, any Yojimbo fight at, in just like the emotional force of it, because they got really brutal with the the things that they were going at each oh, other. Nasty. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think a lot of people are just less familiar with um, or tend to not associate with Kurosawa. A lot of his works that he did in his, when he was in his 60s and 70s, kind of after he stopped working with Mifune, he starts to get really surreal and he starts to make a lot of movies that look a whole lot like Ozu movies. Um, mm. And kind of deal with, you know, like this older age and autumn afternoon type uh themes and uh scenes very much like the one you just described um like madateo that's the one i can really think of um oh a spring storm no rain in august something like that but yes all that is to say they are they are contemporaries and they their films are more connected than i think most people like to think about i think a lot of people go oh uh Ozu does humanist dramas and uh, Kurosawa does samurai films. And yeah, it's like period, a little more complicated action. than that. Yeah. Because, I mean, even which Kurosawa is I'm did so his, sad. Uh, like, yeah, which is and stuff like that. Which is why I'm so sad the Sword of Penitence isn't around because it sounds like a Chambara movie. Yeah, the that other Ozu way. did, and we don't have it. Yeah. Yeah, but I would say Floating Weeds is probably the closest to, like, uh, a Kurosawa, like, action i mean even though there's no action aside from like slapping uh it's still like a brutal feuding between people and just uh no holds barred like going after their their personality and their morality and and you know their just complete identity and deconstructing them uh because they're all very flawed uh and they know how to uh bring those flaws up yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I was curious, actually, Jonathan, what did you think about the failure of the Kabuki troop on the island? The fact that no, that, that they eventually, they just don't succeed. Like, they're not that popular. Yeah, the, okay, yeah, because there's, there's their popularity, and then there's the fact that they get ditched by their manager. Um, that, too. But, yeah, I mean, that's that kind of goes into the whole thing, because they're all basically confronting their own personal failures while they're in this town. And that is just like a big backdrop uh, representation of that is the fact that, you know, he's not being a good father. You know, they're all kind of, they're debating uh, basically mutinying him and just saying like, well, the show's not technically over, but it basically is. So we might as well just leave, leave our director. Um, And, so, you know, they're dealing with loyalty issues and all that. And that's all just kind of set against this backdrop of them having to confront, hey, we're actually just not good actors. So their occupation is being uh, 
deconstructed. Their moralities are being deconstructed. Their loyalties are being deconstructed. It's all just falling apart. And that's, again, that's what goes into, like you said, the fact that it's basically a Greek tragedy. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that would have made it more Greek was if there had been like a love triangle where both the father and the son had fallen for like the same woman. Yeah. That, or someone would have related, been more yeah. Greek. It's almost like a, a little bit of reprieve from Ozu on that account. <laughs> um, and I also I also think that might have been a little too salacious for Ozu. That's just yeah, that's just not quite his style. He can go for some scandal, but uh, he's not the kind of guy who would literally make a movie called Scandal. Not yeah, that exactly. I know any directors who would do that. Nah. Kurosawa. <laughs> Oh man, Scandal's I mean, a really good Ra- movie. It's, it's, it deserves being watched. Even not like a a very clean movie either. But no. Um. All right. Yeah. Let's move on to an autumn afternoon in the afternoon of this podcast, Alex. All right, Jason, take it away. An autumn afternoon from 1962. Suhei Hirayama is a widower. His 24-year-old daughter, Michiko, has been taking care of him since his wife passed, but is also of marrying age. She is interested in moving forward with her life, but doesn't want to leave her father and brother without a woman of the house. Suhei is reluctant to let Michiko go, but as he meets a group of his old middle school classmates, he sees the different paths they've taken in life, remarrying to a younger woman, holding on to their daughter until they're miserable, or letting their daughter move on with life. With the help of his friends and copious amounts of alcohol, Suhei confronts his past, future, and present as he tries to bring himself to let his daughter go. All right, Jonathan, this is Ozu's final movie. Yep. And in a way, I quite like it, it, it as, as like a last movie. It's, it's quite nice to fit into that, uh, into that category. It kind of deals with the autumn of one's life in a lot of ways and making peace with a world that seems to be moving past you while you continue on from day to day. Yeah. I think I'm going to have trouble describing this film separately from late spring. Uh, no, it's like the same movie. Like <laughs> it's very, and, very similar. So I've, I've tried like, and, and granted I did like two minutes of Googling. So I don't know how much of a try you could really call it, but you'd expect something like this scholarly article on the subject to pop up a little faster. Um, but I haven't found what the connection between the two is because you're right, Jonathan, they're kind of the same movie. Yeah. Uh, I saw, Oh, here Roger Ebert says about late spring, late spring began a cycle of Ozu films about families. Did he make the same film again and again? Not at all. Late spring and early summer are startlingly different in the second. Noriko takes advantage of a, uh, of a controversial, uh, opening about marriage to overturn the entire plot. So yeah, basically like every, all of these are very similar. So even in, um, uh, early summer, uh, which is the second Noriko film, uh, that I watched and it's, it's, it's got a lot of the same things where Noriko is being kind of pressured to marry. She's 28. She, uh, her family has picked out this guy for her. They're like going, almost behind her back and like setting up a match that they're all very set on. And then she chooses someone else. Uh, and so it becomes a very individual choice for her to, uh, get married at that point. And early summer is actually much more joyful than late spring is. Um, Mm -hmm. and then an autumn afternoon kind of comes back. And like we said at the beginning, it, it takes that same 
bitter sweetness and it it again takes the bitter side but it's from the father it's much more from the father's point of view and we're seeing the father's uh interactions with his friends um and you know his one friend who's gotten remarried to a young wife and keeps flaunting it uh and then his old uh teacher who is a widower and lives with his daughter and she's miserable and he's miserable and he doesn't want to end up like her or like him uh, living with his daughter until their old age. So it's kind of showing like the the progression of what late spring would have been if she had decided to not get married and they just live together. Uh, yeah. And yet the the tragedy part of an autumn afternoon is that because th- that's the thing is he doesn't want to become lonely like his old teacher who lived with his daughter and they were both lonely even though they lived together and yet he's lonely because he doesn't have his daughter with him so there's really no winning for him it's again it's an inevitable progression that has this bitterness that can't really be taken out of the equation you know if she stays with him they're both going to grow up and be lonely because you know their their relationship as father and daughter is great but at some point as you age like you need different kind of relationship around you every day. Uh, And so it's interesting because in late spring, that's kind of one of the options is for them to just stay as they are. Uh, And an autumn afternoon shows the, the sadder side of what that could have become. And so we're taking again, the same idea, but looking at it from a different angle. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like, I actually really like the angle on this movie and I don't feel like it's redundant. It doesn't feel like a redo of the same movie. Um, it's just that like when you're talking about specific incidents, like and setting, a lot of it is similar, although uh, the the outcome of of it is different. Yeah. A lot of the concept is similar, but the, the take on it is different and almost in a way it kind of shows what a rich filmmaker Ozu is to be able to kind of take the same concept and make it interesting in multiple ways. Um, yeah, it's quite good. I like the emphasis on the importance of personal growth that you're never done growing, even mm-hmm. in your autumn years. I like, I love, love, love all of the conversations between him and his friends of the same age who are kind of like just comparisons, like you said, of him. But if he had gone down different paths, if he had yeah. married his daughter off earlier, if it, he, keeps his daughter for if longer, he gets remarried if he gets remarried uh, and they even put in they present him with all these options there's even the woman the young woman who he flirt, flirts with at the bar who um reminds him so much of his wife yes and then there's there's uh the old gourd's daughter and i was like he should get together with with her like that would solve all the problems that would be a lot of answers you know <laughs> yeah and and the entire time you're Kind of rooting for this guy. I like this guy a lot. Oh like, yeah. And again, this is this is Chishu Ryu. So I mean, at this point, after we've watched like four or five Ozu films with him in it, like you're just automatically on his side. He's kind of like I, I almost want to call him like a Japanese Jimmy Stewart. Like he's just very relatable and just instantly likable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's he's like the best version of like an everyman character mm-hmm. that I've ever seen. He's just instantly likable. Um, you you can instantly relate to him, uh, and there's nothing really inherently like offensive about him or the way he acts in any of these roles mm-hmm. either. He's often like he just, very slow and kind of uh timid and thoughtful almost. 
not really kind of timid, subtle, but kind yeah, of deliberate. Subtle. Yeah, yeah. It, you can you can tell that there's a lot of thought going on in his head, but it doesn't like he's not like ignoring the world to yeah. think. He's still interacting with the world, um, and it encourages you to think in time with him and to empathize with him even more through that. And of course. I think we mentioned this before a little bit in the floating weed section, but the color palette of this movie is just super strong. Oh, yeah. There's reds and oranges and a tiny bit of like a deep amber gold um, mm-hmm. in like every single frame of this movie. It's absolutely gorgeous. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so I uh, there's one like it's not a big part of the film, but I thought it was really interesting just uh as kind of like a window into uh, a cultural view. Uh, whenever he's talking to the guy at the bar that he meets who uh, used to be under his command when he was um, an officer in the Japanese army and he finds someone who was in his uh, troop and they go out for drinks and they're talking about the outcome of the war. Um, and the, the younger guy is like, you know, if we hadn't lost the war, we would both be in New York right now. We'd be living it up. We'd be rulers. Um, and then uh, Chishu Ryu's character says something like, well, I think it's good that we lost, uh, you know, because of, I mean, World War II. We did a whole series on World War II, so go check that out. Um, but it's, it was interesting to hear it from their perspective and not like kind of imposing a a winner's view on you know how the losers are perceiving the end of the war does that make sense yeah yeah no i get it i get it um the the and i kind of like the idea that the dream is that they would be you know kings in new york um but that's not how reality works and i think for our main character in this movie, it's almost the rejection of some kind of idealistic everybody wins scenario and the acceptance of the reality of how life works, where there's change, there's growth, there's loss and there's gain. And they all happen in balanced measures over the course of your life. And realizing that even a win can be a bad thing, depending on, you know, what the, the outcome and the, the nuances of the situation are. Yeah, like he could, if he wanted to be super selfish, he could just keep his daughter with him forever. Count that mm-hmm. as a win. Always have somebody be his companion and take care of him. But that would ultimately not be good. Yeah, and we do see, like, because in this film probably has, uh, yeah, this film definitely has way more drinking than uh, Late Spring did because he's coming home every night drunk, like you said, and every day she says, you know, you drank too much. He's like, no, no, no it's fine. Uh, every day, so you drank too much, and I I feel like he comes home drunker and drunker throughout the film, and then we kind of see that with the old gourd, the old teacher, uh, when he when he gets dropped off at home uh, by our main character and his friend, and his daughter is like, oh, I'm so sorry, like she is mortified that these two guys had to drop off her dad, who's just plastered, doesn't understand anything, uh. And, you know, she would like to have a conversation with these guys, but also she's kind of embarrassed about her living situation and all this stuff. And then like her dad is is three sheets to the wind and she just like breaks down crying after they leave. 
Uh, and so you kind of see with him coming home drunk so much that that would sort of just be the same thing. Like his daughter would just get more and more disappointed in him if nothing changed, if there was nothing that kind of forced him to reevaluate, you know, his routine and his life uh, and nothing to keep her from getting into, you know, a different situation, a more a more comfortable living situation for a long period of time. Yeah, I like that they show that experience in this film of what it's like for them to live on a day to day basis mm-hmm. while going through all of these other interesting scenes of him comparing his life's or potential lives, potential lives, I should say, um, you know, you actually get to see the things that they would be losing, but also see the things that they could be gaining by yeah. moving forward in life. Yeah. And again, we never see, uh, we never see her fiance. That's completely left out of it. Cause it's not the point her relationship and the, the aftermath of the marriage is the point. Um, and it's so, it's so interesting because, in some ways, I feel like our American cultural experience expects us to kind of see more independence in the in the marriage decision making and process and stuff like that. And yet, I also feel like there's a lot more of a uh, relationship between the potential uh, fiance and the family because they're even though we don't ever see the fiance in late spring or anything like that. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of interaction between the fiance and the family. Like there's one meeting that we know we skip over. Uh, and I think there's one or two meetings that we know we skip over in an autumn afternoon, but it's not like they're hanging out getting to know each other's personalities. It's mostly like a sizing up of, of situations. So again, it's just one of those interesting cultural translation things you got to do in your head. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you start to understand it too. Yeah. The more, you uh, watch. the more Ozu movies you watch and the more, you know, just Japanese movies in general <laughs> that you watch, like you start to develop a certain cultural fluency in aspects of it for certain time periods. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I, this is not necessarily like the, the status quo right now no. at all. <laughs> Th- that would, that would be like saying that things in America are like, were like they were yeah. in the sixties. You know, with not to say that this is a lots period of political piece, but, tension yeah. and crazy stuff going on. There's no way that would be the same. But the, the, well, <laughs> ignore that part. But the culture is totally different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's just so interesting because we do get such a full picture and you feel like I mean, I wasn't there, but you feel like it's such an accurate picture of the the kinds of struggles and tensions that everyone had to deal with in this type of a, uh, um, at least in this, you know, social fear and like, you know, this very, I want to say like suburban middle class, but that's like American terminology, but you get what I mean. Like it's very, uh, yeah, you get the idea that they're not certainly not poor. They're not living in the slum. Yeah. Uh, but they're also not mega rich. Yeah. And so these are, is probably the most common experience and the types of uh, of just everyday tensions and stuff. And then, you know, you can kind of just extrapolate that on a broader level to the culture as a whole. Exactly. All right, Jonathan, are you ready to move on to overall notes? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Jonathan. So first, let's recap some of the unique like Ozu 
camera techniques and his own kind of film rhetoric that he's uh, developed for himself. That's kind of outside that, of the norm. <laughs> the lines and the the square just like build of, oh, of these that. Japanese flats, like it's so cinematic. It just plays perfectly on screen, especially in like a full full screen uh, 4.3 or Academy aspect ratio. Oh, yeah. Oh, trust me, we're going to get to that. <laughs> but first, uh, he definitely loves to prioritize low angles, a lot of wides, a lot of extended shots. Specifically, those low angles are called tatami shots because of the tatami mats. Mm-hmm. Uh, he prefers to shoot not OTSs, but head-on one-shot shots for conversations, for shot-reverse-shot dialogue scenes where the characters are looking straight at the camera. Typically, the camera's placed a little bit below them, too, so it's not. It's very clear that they're not looking directly at the audience. Yeah, it's not like they're breaking the fourth wall, but they are. It's a very dead-on way, which, as we talked about in our serial killers episode, is a very good way to build up empathy for characters when you look them directly in the eye. Uh, typically, looking at them, the farther to the side you look at a character, the more distant they feel. The more they feel like they're being disingenuous or insincere, or that they're hiding something, or possibly even lying. Um, he loves, loves, loves ellipses, which are, uh, you know, just completely omitting certain parts of the story or scenes that are presumed to happen between the beginning and end of the plot, um, that the characters make reference to, or you presume happen, but you just never see like seeing who, uh, the fiance is in our first and last films of yeah. the day. Um, as well as using static shot transitions that often look like still lifes of seemingly random landscapes or um, objects, but still serve or just a like purpose. hallways in the house. Yeah, yeah, just like hallways. Just looking somewhere else in the space for a hot second before returning to the story. Typically, in uh, implying that time has passed. And the other thing uh, is um, holding on shots for you know two or three seconds longer than you would expect after the action or the characters have left um, and you're just kind of left to, to sit there. And that's part of, again, that, that style that Paul Schrader calls transcendental. Yeah. Ozu gives you time to sit with your thoughts. Now, because you already uh, mentioned it, Jonathan, I do want to say that Ozu obviously has a lot of influence on a lot of people Mm -hmm. out there, but if looking specifically at his camera work, um, especially the way he shoots, scenes you know just wide framing dead on angles and uh centered uh dead on one shots obviously the thing that pops into my mind is that these are all wes anderson techniques absolutely Uh, yeah these are things he pulls pretty much straight from ozu and uses in a very uh different setup that's obviously much more westernized um but that's just you know one of the easily accessible examples of how his influence has reached to um, modern cinema. The other big one that I think of a lot is that there's much fewer um, establishing shots in uh, modern cinema than there used to be. Um, We typically don't need to see like the exterior of our house or apartment unless that exterior has some very specific meaning in the plot or the story. Um, So that typically is totally... Uh, omitted in a lot of scenes these days. Yeah, totally. Um, and again, like the 
the casting is so overlapped in all of Ozu's films that you you get to the more like Ozu that you watch, you get really familiar with certain faces like Haruko uh, Sugimura, who plays uh, often like the aunt or she's the the daughter of the teacher in an autumn afternoon. Um, I forget. I'm pretty sure she's in Floating Weeds. I forget who she is in Floating Weeds. Oh, she's the she's the mom of the kid, uh, the old mistress. Uh, and then, as we already said, Satsuko Hara, who plays uh, Noriko and Chishu Ryu. And uh, even some of the, I don't know the names of the little boys, but the little boys that come back in Good Morning, which is their shining moment, they show up in several of these. Uh, so like we talked about with a lot of uh, modern directors who just kind of like get a set group of actors that they love to work with, like Christopher Nolan and Wes Anderson and stuff like that, they have their cast. Ozu kind of has the same thing with his uh, actors that he knows he knows their roles. He knows, uh, especially since he's making films that all fall generally in a very similar uh, setting and character roles. He can just kind of mix and match his actors that he knows, get him and what he's going for and just put them in their different respective roles and just let them go for it. It ensures kind of like the same level of quality or like, you know, your ability to iterate on certain ideas over and over and make them better and better each time, which is exactly what Ozu does uh, when you have a consistent working team, like having the same co-writer every time or having, you know, a few cinematographers who you work with every time or having actors who, you know, can play certain parts. And so you write to their strengths, um, which is all fantastic. Um, I like the use of music motifs in a lot of his movies. The one that really sticks out to me is in an autumn afternoon when you play the uh, Navy March. Oh uh, yeah. 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 Over and over. And you can see him remembering like a period of time in his life where it wasn't autumn afternoon. Yeah. Um, And there's, you know, other examples of that. Obviously all the scoring is brilliant um, and motifs are used. Although Uh, interestingly, there's not a lot of music used diegetically or uh, sorry, non-diegetically. If, if it is used, it's used diegetically like the um, like the the march, the army march or whatever. Uh, but when he does use music, it's usually during those periods of transition. It's usually during those periods when we're holding on shots of a set or an item that are, you know, kind of empty. There's those again just quote unquote transcendental moments. Uh, But when we're in a scene, we're usually just hearing uh, the diegetic sounds of, you know, whatever the people are doing and then uh, the dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a very Ozu thing to do. Even his transition shots are some of the most diegetic I've ever seen, which sounds crazy, but they are like, they're all explained by just being part of the world that we've seen and experienced um, so far on screen. Yeah. And again, speaking of uh, influence, uh, and I haven't seen this, but uh, one of the other directors that um, we were considering covering that we touched on during the world tour is Abbas Kiarostami, uh, the Iranian director. And he created a documentary uh, called Five uh, or Five Dedicated to Ozu, um, which I have not seen, but apparently it's uh, a film that just consists of five long takes set by the ocean uh, that are just very nature focused. So in the, in the first scene, uh, a piece of driftwood on the seashore 
carried by the waves. In the second shot, just people walking on the seashore. Uh, in the third shot, we see blurry shapes on a winter beach. Uh, and then there's another scene of ducks and another scene of a pond at night. You know, just these very essential kind of nature shots that hold and let you think about it. Um, and I can definitely see Kiarostami being influenced by Ozu through things like his uh, uh, Where's the Friends House and the, the Coker trilogy. Um, and even just the the subtle way that he made um, Close Up, which is the film that we did talk about during the uh, during the world tour. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also like that. Well, I don't know how much I like it. It's not like I dislike <laughs> it. It's just an interesting thing to point out that a lot of Ozu's films deal with the ideas of uh, transit uh, transition between tradition and a newer um, version of the world and change within each individual character's life as well. Yeah. Um, but it is, he's he kind of makes a lot of movies right around the turn or the, the mid century where things are really changing from uh, arguably a, a modern world into more of a postmodern world. Although the words modern and postmodern irritate me to no end because they're stupid. Yeah. Um, but you, you get what I'm saying. He's kind of at this junction point in the 20th century where a lot of stuff changes very quickly. And you see a lot of that reflected within his work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he he's a very timely director. I mean, he starts very early in film in general in the I think he has a film from the very late. Oh, yeah, yeah. His first film was 27. Uh, so he starts during the silent film era and then works his way up to the early 60s. I mean, even just in the history of cinema, that's that's the early cinema through the golden age. I mean, speaking in Hollywood terms, into uh, almost the modern era of cinema. And so even just the, the time that he's making films and the way that films were being made was a transition point. And yet his whole uh, oeuvre is so consistent and so uh, similar. Like an Ozu film from the 30s or 40s is very recognizable uh, still in his work in the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah, no, he is. I want to say consistent filmmaker, but that kind of seems to imply that he doesn't evolve, which he definitely does mm -hmm. uh, and grow as a filmmaker, as he would argue is, I think, is important to everybody to grow and evolve. Um, Not like we haven't been talking he, about that for the past hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, but he is. Uh, I don't know. He's just really good. He's really good. He's not yeah. uh, one of your most commonly talked about film directors outside mm -hmm. of film circles. But he's just he as intentional. Yeah, he's just as intentional as like a Hitchcock or something. Like he, everything yeah. feels like it was precisely decided and planned ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I, I really recommend him. I know a lot of people just don't have like you know the time or the inclination to yeah. go through uh, low key, two hour long subtitle dramas, but. I recommend it. I feel like you'll learn a lot. And especially if you are an aspiring filmmaker, I really, really recommend him because I think it's dangerous to fall into the idea that there's only one way to make movies. And that's just really, really wrong. You end up feeling trapped by rules that are effective, but uh, can also be binding. 
And you also fall into the trap of thinking that you need to make movies only like the people you admire uh, when sometimes watching a very a group of very diversely made movies, like in different styles and formats that are all successful in their own right, can really help you find what you really want to make, which is typically a collection of bits and pieces from all those styles of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So check out some Ozu. Uh, there, it's almost all on Criterion Channel. I don't know if it's online anywhere, but... Definitely worth seeking out. Probably find some booted copies of these. Yeah, uh, but definitely worth seeking out. However, you find it. All right, Jonathan. What are we going to be talking about next week on the podcast? Yeah, next time we are uh, plugging right along in the series, the the mini short series that we started a couple episodes ago. Uh, with sports and we talked about some team sports stuff so you can go check that out and next time we're going to follow it up with some individual sports uh so of course we have to talk about rocky from 1976 the quintessential sports movie uh and then we'll also be talking about chariots of fire from 1981 and also in kind of like a unconventional take on sports uh we're gonna throw in the rider from 2017 uh rider not writer um, cause I think it, it has some good themes about th- the limits of <laughs> sport and, uh, dedication and that kind of thing. It'll also be nice to talk about a sports movie that I wouldn't necessarily call a dad movie. Um, oh yeah, no, the writer's probably not a dad movie. <laughs> no, no, this is a much newer movie too. So yeah. it's not something, it's not something, it's a mo- sports movie that your dad didn't grow up with, which is going to be <laughs> fun to talk about. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, if you would like to support the podcast, uh, we have a Patreon, so you can check us out over there. Uh, You can join our digital community on Discord, uh, where we live stream all our recordings, and we do Netflix parties sometimes, and we talk about movies. Uh, And we also have a bonus podcast here, and the last episode on the bonus podcast that you can listen to now is The House is Innocent, which is a short documentary about a couple who moved into the house of a real life serial killer to kind of uh, wrap up our discussion of serial killer movies from the last episode. All right. That's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And I am at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. I've watched a bunch of Ozu films this week, and he does this a lot. Yeah. I'm going to wait for that hammering. Yeah, I was going to say, I can even hear that. Sorry, somebody just moved in next door, Uh and I think they're just getting their apartment ready. Yeah.